So I've been talking about the incredible methods of Jesus to bring about reconciliation. We've been talking about, we said that Easter was when Jesus became king of all the earth. And the way you became king was key. Uh, how we went about that uh, mission was key. Because he met power, control, and violence, not with power, control, and violence, but uh, rather he met with submission and peace. And rather than retaliate, he absorbs all that violence into himself and in the process brings reconciliation. And so I'm really talking about the power of forgiveness, the power of absorbing the pain into ourselves rather than throwing it back or throwing it out or throwing it around. Um, The example of Jesus to meet violence with silence, to meet anger with meekness, to meet power and control with forgiveness... He's an incredible example of absorbing the wrongs of others into himself so others can walk free of the consequences and actions of their own wrongs. Which is just an incredible statement, really. And of course, we're called to walk the same path because that path leads to the same place. It leads to restoration, redemption, and reconciliation. And we talked to this message of ministry we've got of reconciliation. Uh, from 2 Corinthians 5 that's about restoring people to their original design. We've talked about how that comes about. Uh, It demands a life of forgiveness and it demands a focus on the gold rather than the grit. So last time I was talking about that it demands us to speak, think and act based on the gold, the goodness we see in those around us as opposed to the grit, the not so good things we see in those around us. So we could could see if you go out there, Nath. One of the so we ask this question whether we're calling out the gold or the grit. Um, and I think it's massively important, and I'm going to build on why I think it's really important today. We said there are plenty of people willing to point out the grit. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to point out that which is not so good in people. Um, but we are a kingdom people. And kingdom people point out gold before they point out grit. So we have to ask ourselves how often and how much are we operating like the kingdom people we are? And how much are we calling out gold and how much are we pointing out the grip? Um, We said that one of your identities in Christ Jesus is a reconciler because you have a message and a ministry of reconciliation. Um, So that's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells you. You have a message and a ministry of reconciliation. That is one of your jobs is to share a message and be a person who reconciles, who brings people together. That doesn't mean to say, of course, that you agree with everybody, but you can manage to disagree and still be the friend. I realize that's not very common these days. I realize that if we don't agree about everything, we have to ostracize ourselves from people. So goes our culture. But being a reconciler means somebody who is able to actually disagree about various things and still love people. Uh, That's what it means about reconciling. But this morning I want to remind you of something of your identity in Christ Jesus, but actually what I really want to do is remind you of everybody else's identity in Christ Jesus. I want to remind you not just who you are, but who the person next to you is. Who the person you really don't like at the moment is. Who the person who's grating you up the wrong way is. I want to remind you of their identity, because your identity is also their identity. And I think it's really helpful and powerful, and it's actually, as you'll see, really, really important. I want to remind you who you are talking to when you chat with a friend. 
I want to remind you who you were addressing when you talked to a work colleague. I want to remind you who you were talking about when you chat about somebody who's not in the room. And of course, some of us have done really well at walking the journey of knowing we're sons and daughters to a father, or that we're, we're royalty in the kingdom, or that we're saints and not sinners, that we're ambassadors. These are some of our identities in Christ Jesus. But some of us have still got a journey to go to recognize that that is also true for the person next to me. So that's the next step. Once you know it, then you've got to start recognizing that it's, if it's true of you, it's true of everybody else. This is not just unique to you, it's unique to everybody else. No matter who they are, what they say, where they go, what they believe. No matter what they think about the issues of the day. They are sons and daughters. Royalty. So as I talk, I don't really want to think about you this morning. I've talked for over a decade on who you are in Christ Jesus. But I want you to think about everybody else this morning. I particularly want to think about those people that you're battling with and struggling with, those people that are really annoying you and winding you up. I want you to think about them as I talk this morning because I want you to see them the way that God sees them. I want you to remind you that they are also royalty. They are also sons and daughters. They are also co-heirs with Christ. So let's start in Genesis 1 and 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God he created them. First of all, Genesis is a historical document written by an ancient Near East culture in an ancient Near East time. So you cannot read it with 21st century glasses. You do not read Shakespeare with 21st century glasses on. You understand what was going on at the time. And if you don't understand what was going on at the time, you miss lots of what's going on. If you don't understand what's going on, I don't know which play, but one of the plays is about a king. That's right, Phil? One of his plays. And if you don't understand what's going on with the king at the time, you miss a lot of what's going on with the play. So you have to put it in its context. Well, it's the same with, of course, the whole Bible, but it's particularly true of Genesis so you have to ask them, well, what does it mean? What's this whole image thing all about then? What was going on? What was it like? What did image mean at the time in ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt? Well, in the ancient Near East, images and likenesses abounded. There are all sorts of images reflecting all sorts of gods. And this Hebrew creation story gets birthed into a time when there is all sorts of images going on. And all the surrounding cultures, they've all got kings and they are designated an image. And the king is tasked with representing a god and blessing the earth. So all these surrounding cultures have one person who is a king who represents the god. So there's a god who's image is represented by a person, the king, who would also have idols and statues of him. So you've got a statue of a king, and then you've got a king, and then you've got a god. And this idol and statue represents the king or represents God. Okay? So this is all over. So you've got a king of, it's why you read about the pharaohs and all those types of guys. They have images, and you read about all the images going on in ancient Egypt. So this, this story gets birthed into this culture. So all the other people around have to serve one king who represents their God. And into this culture, you get the Hebrew creation story, where instead of one king bearing the Hebrew God's image, everyone is created in his image. So Adam in Hebrew means humankind. It doesn't... It, it doesn't particularly we we think this it's about one particular man but and it may well be but it's also about humankind this is a story about 
how God sees humankind. Notice as well the incredibly powerful nature of women in the Hebrew story. There were no women kings really in ancient times, but in the Hebrew creation story, you get a woman being created and she's equal with man and they are mankind together and they are both going to represent the king. Fascinating leap forward in human consciousness that a woman could represent a god. Fabulous. So what you get is, the, is that what is true of one single king in these surrounding cultures is true of all humanity. And of course, the task of royalty is to rule. So instead of there being one king, effectively, that represents a god, the Hebrew creation story says, no, the whole of mankind is going to represent me. You are going to bear my image and my likeness, and you are going to therefore be king's royalty rule, which is exactly what God tells humanity to do. They were to extend Eden and rule over the chaos outside to bring it wherever they found it. But listen, if humanity is royal in nature, which it is and which is confirmed in the New Testament because according to Romans 8, you are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Well, if you're heir of God and a co-heir with Christ and Christ is king, that must mean you're royalty. And according to Revelation, he's made as members of his royal family. Okay, so you're members of his royal family. So if you're a prince or a princess in the kingdom, then so is everybody else in this room. Welcome to the royal family. You thought it was just a select few. You want to live the life in the limelight. No, you are part of a royal family. That's what Revelation 1.6 says in the New Living Translation. Of course, many people are unaware of their royal nature, of their royal heritage and lineage. But being aware of something doesn't make it untrue. It just means you're unaware of it. Of course, in reality, the whole of humanity, the whole of humanity is part of God's royal family. Some people have woken up to the realization that they're part of God's royal family. Some people are yet to realize the part of God's royal family. But the whole of humanity is really, that's what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says. We're birthed in this way. Of course, we are now mad. But that does not stop us being part of the royal family. As we see, royal families are mad. They don't always act like royalty. Okay, well, that's because they're mad like you and me. That doesn't mean they're not royal, though. Don't mean they don't have a lineage. Don't mean they're not part of something greater. So we have to ask, to what extent do we treat those around us according to their royal nature in Christ Jesus? Pete Hughes, in his book, All Things New, says uh, this. You've got that quote there, Neff? It's across two slides. A key aspect of action, then, is to restore a royal identity to those who toss the heavenly crown aside in trying to become king of their own kingdom. This sin of life centered around the self leads to dehumanization. Human life loses value, which affects how we treat one another. Far from treating one another like royalty, we treat one another as if we are but dust. And it's fascinating because we do tend to treat one another as though we're dust rather than royalty. And yet, we, we were dust, but then God breathed in us, Genesis 2, 7 says. So we were made from dust, but then God breathed in us, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living being, it says. So initially in creation we were dust, but then we had the breath of life, the breath of God, which upholds all things in every way. And that one oxygen that got breathed into Adam's lungs, it was the very spirit of God, the breath of God, the thing that upholds you. And then you can go back and read through Job and see that if God inhales his breath, all flesh would perish. In other words, the very spirit of God upholds everything. And everyone, again, lots of people are unaware of it. 
That don't mean it's not true. It don't mean it's not true. The Spirit of God upholds it all. There is no one who is just skin and bone. Everybody is sustained by the breath of God. Some have become aware of it and are thankful for it. And are understanding that when they embrace this breath within them and seek more of it, they find answers and healing and fulfillment to all sorts of challenges that they face. That's another way of talking about the Christian faith. When you embrace the breath of God within you, seek more of it. You find healing, you find life, you find fulfillment, you find love, you find grace. Because more of this breath fills you of life. But let's never forget that every single person is a home, a temple, a sanctuary, and a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And at Him, they are His royal kids, part of His royal family. So we must always remember in all our interactions, in all our conversations, this. Our calling is not to add value to something that is worthless, but to restore value to something that is priceless. Every single person on this earth is priceless. You are not looking to add value to them. You are restoring what is really true about them. You may not realize that you are priceless. You are priceless. To Jesus, you are priceless. To the Father, you are priceless. And the Father wants to restore the truth of your value to you so you know that you are priceless in his sight. That's really what it means to know the Father, is to know that the value that you really are is going to be restored. So you start to see yourself as he sees you, so you know I am a priceless child of God, and Jesus would do anything for me as evidenced by what he did for me. But of course, if it's true for you, it's also true for everybody else. And of course, one of the ways you restore value is by calling out the gold in them. One of the ways you bring forth that value and remind them that they are priceless is when you call out the gold that's in them. One of the ways you do the opposite is by calling out the grit. So when you call out the grit, you are not restoring value to somebody that's priceless. You are diminishing that value that God places on them because to God he's priceless. And God does not need your help in pointing out the grit. He's fully aware of it. They don't either most of the time. And unless they've asked you, you have no right to tell them it either. You see, if we grab this, if we really grab this, it would absolutely transform our already transformed family and tribe. But there's greater depths to grab of it. You see, when we call out the grit, we diminish their value, we reduce their value, we disagree with the value God has placed on them, and we are not speaking his words and his life because he's always calling out the gold. Because sometimes he points out the grit, but only because he wants to turn it into gold. But that's just the first consequence of the truth that you are made in the image and likeness of God. Because there's another one. And this consequence is why God made such a big deal about idols in the laws of Exodus and Leviticus. If you read Exodus and Leviticus, there's tons of rules about idols and don't make an image. The second commandment is do not make for yourselves. Let me actually read it so I get it right. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything of heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. Like, why is that such a big deal? Well, again, if everything's based around images and idols and their reflections of people, to make an image that is not human is to reduce the value of the human and therefore reduce the value of God. 
So that Hebrew word image generally referred to a cult statue, which were everywhere in the ancient Near East. But the Hebrew creation story sets humanity apart because it says no humanity represents God's statues on the earth, statues on the earth, because men and women bear His image and likeness. In, <coughs> in other words, we don't need any statues of God because God created living, breathing statues who express Him. That's why it's so horrible for God. God goes, no, no, I already made expressions of me. I don't need any statues going on. I've made living, breathing, moving expressions of me. And of course, when you do something that that tries to put that in a fixed form, you deny the reality of the statues he's already made. So every person that you know is made in the image and likeness of God. You are an image and likeness of God. Of course, you are, to some degree, a mad image. You do not perfectly represent the image of God. Nobody does on the earth. But just because you don't perfectly represent it does not mean that you do not represent it. I believe that if you look hard enough, you can find something of the image of God in everybody. Depends how hard we look. And what we want to focus on when we do look. So first, we have to accept we are the image and likeness of God. You can see something of the Father in me, and I can see something of him in you. And that is meant to be different as well. You realize he's a bit of a big God, and he was never going to get it all in just one person. Maybe that's why the seven billion people on the planet, maybe because in the seven billion people, you get some idea of what he's like. I don't know. So stop focusing on all the ways that you don't see him in people and start or yourself and start focusing on the ways that you do. But then we've got to consider the consequence of it when we think of other people. Because it's quite profound. You see, in the ancient Near East, it was common for powerful kings to erect statues of themselves in parts of their empire where they would not appear. So let's say a king had a big empire and he didn't really fancy this bit because it was dusty and hot and he had some nice palace over here. And he'd want people to remember that he was the king. So he'd make a big statue of himself, plonk it down in, you know, Adam land. And uh, then he'd go to his palace in Adam land too. And um, this wasn't very creative, was it? But anyway, um, so that in Adam land too, everybody would see his face. But in Adam land one, they'd just look at a statue and they would remember that Adam was king in Adam land. I like Adam land. Um, <laughs> But this statue in Adam Land 1 is a reminder of the king. And when people looked at it, they'd go, Ah, King Adam, we love you, we adore you. I really like Adam Land. Um, But here's the thing. Here's the thing about the ancient Near East. Because if somebody decided to, to desecrate the statue, it would be considered exactly the same as desecrating Adam himself. If somebody came up and draw some glasses on the statue, a little... You know, some hair perhaps, which won't be a bad thing. But anyways, but there's this idea that, no, hang on a minute, this statue, this is a representation of the real Adam Sinai's palace in Adam Land 2. And if I'm going to desecrate the statue, what I'm really doing is desecrating Adam. It was impossible to differentiate between the image and the king it represented. They were one and the same. Think about that then with the Hebrew creation story. Defacing or desecrating image of the king who represented the God was therefore desecrating the God whom the king and the image represented. 
Since the Bible talks about you being the image of God, then to an ancient Near Eastern mind, harming humanity was the same as harming the God they represented. You read this with an ancient Near Eastern mind and you start to see the message of image and likeness. You defile the image, you defile the God. You defile the image, you defile the God. These people around you, they're the image. And this is not just a one-off. We see it in other parts of the Bible. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. To oppress someone made in the image of God is to oppress the God who made them and whose image they bear. To be kind to someone made in the image of God is to be kind to the God who made them and whose image they bear. I'll think about Jesus' words in Matthew 25. There's a whole list where Jesus goes on, when you met me in prison, when you fed me, when you brought me clothes, when you did this, when you did that, then you met me and they went, well, Jesus, we, we never brought you clothes, we never fed you, I mean, you just magicked food up all the time, we couldn't feed you, like, you had the best clothes, we didn't, you were never in prison, although you got threatened a lot, like, we didn't visit you in prison, and Jesus says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, in other words, people you fed, you did for me. Jesus makes it clear, clear that whenever we care for anyone, whenever we restore their royal status, we don't just do it for them, but we do it for him because they are his image and his likeness. So to love someone made in the image of God, which is everybody by the way, is to love God himself. And to harm someone made in the image of God, whether with your words or your actions or your deeds or your lack of actions or lack of words or lack of deeds, is actually to harm God himself in some way. Which means that to call out the gold in someone is to call out the image of God that somebody is. To call out the grit is to deny the image of God that somebody is. You see... You see, there's a God in Godland, in heaven, and he made all these statues, like Ellie and Naomi and Millie and Rich and Carol and everybody else that's here. He made all these statues, and he went, this is my representation of who I am on the face of the earth. This is part of who I am. This is an expression of who I am, and I want you to honor this as though it is me because that's an expression of me. I want you to treat this person as though it's me being with you, because when you treat them like that, that's what he says in Matthew 25, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. In other words, how you treat them is how you treat me. Don't tell me you love Jesus, and then bitch about somebody all the time. It's nonsense. Sorry, but I just get upset about it. Think about it. What you did to them, you did to me. What you did to them, you did to me. What you did. Okay, so think about. Just think now. Go back amongst all your conversations this last week. Would you say those things to Jesus? If Jesus was sat in the room, which, by the way, he was, would you let those things come out of your mouth? Some of us have got some saying sorry to do. We've all got some saying sorry to do because each human being on the earth is so precious and so priceless to Jesus that he would never say anything 
that would call out the grit, unless it was to their face in the deepest of love to call out the gold in them. That's the only time he would ever do it. Anything else is not from him. And I know that in our culture right now, it's hard. I realize this is massively countercultural, but this is the kingdom of God. And we are in the thing called the kingdom, and we're going to live like it and express it and tell it. Because I want to tell you, the more the world looks less like the kingdom, the easier it is to be the kingdom, and the brighter your light shines by doing nothing different. The world's just got to get darker. You don't have to need to get brighter to get brighter. The darker a room gets, the tiniest little bulb gets brighter. Well, I'm going to work on being brighter as well. I don't know about you. But listen. Listen. I recognize that in this day and age, there is a huge amount of division. There is a huge amount of things to disagree about. There's a huge amount of things that you, are, you feel forced to sit in one camp or another camp. But listen, at the end of every opinion and behind every tweet and every Facebook thing and every conversation is a child of the Father. He is a prince and a princess in the royal family of God. And we've got to get even better at treating them as they really are. I don't care how wrong you think they are. I don't care how much you want to tell them that you're right. At the end of the day, they are precious and priceless and beautiful and loved by the Father. And I want us to express the heart of the Father more and more and more. Wherever we go and whatever we do. Let's just pray. All right, let's just take a moment, shall we? Each of us in our own way has failed to call out the gold in those around us. And I think it'd be good to take a moment and do this, whether you're watching online or whether you're in the building. Let's just take some moments to say sorry to Jesus, just personally in your own heart. If God has particularly brought anybody to mind or any conversations to mind, then he's done that because he wants you to be more like him. He has no desire to condemn you, to make you feel guilty or any of that. So don't allow any of that to flood in, but just recognize he wants you to be like him. Let's just take a moment.
Father, I thank you that you do not hold our sins and trespasses against us. That you forgive us unconditionally because of what you have already done. And Father, for those ways in which we have not upheld others' royal image, those ways in which we have not honored them as your image and likeness, Father, we say sorry, but we are thankful and grateful that you cleanse us of all that we have not done right, Father, and that we walk in your goodness and your forgiveness. But Father, we want to ask, Lord, that you help us be those people who acknowledge the royal image in everyone around us. That you help us acknowledge their gold that is in their lives and the goodness in which they live. And Father, I just pray, Lord, I... I pray, Lord, that I have expressed your heart in the best way possible and for those words which I have not, even this morning, Father, I want to say that I'm sorry, Lord, words which I have not managed to express your heart and your word in words that you would have done, Lord, I'm sorry. But, Lord, any ways in which I have expressed your heart and your word, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take those words and accelerate them into our hearts and our lives, Father. In the name of Jesus. Amen.